You're listening to Now I've Heard Everything, presenting interviews with famous, fascinating, influential personalities from the 80s, 90s, and 2000s. Pickets around my house, bullets flying through the downstairs window, bullets in the mail, hate messages on my answering machine. If you're going to do these kind of cases, you've got to anticipate and expect that and hope to live through it. Defense attorney William Kunstler. Today on Now I've Heard Everything, I'm Bill Thompson. The New York Times once labeled William Kunstler America's most controversial lawyer. This was after he had defended the so-called Chicago 7, those young radicals who attempted to disrupt the 1968 Democratic National Convention in Chicago. But that wasn't the only case that drew controversy to William Kunstler. He's also defended clients ranging from Jack Ruby to Clayton Lone Tree, the U.S. Marine and accused Russian spy, to the blind shake the mastermind behind the 1993 World Trade Center bombing. I met William Kunstler in 1994 when he published an autobiography, a book called My Life as a Radical Lawyer. So here now from 1994, William Kunstler. When you sit down and and look back and survey a life of 75 years, does it surprise you all the things you've done? I'll tell you, it certainly did surprise me. I can't believe that I did all the things in the book, and there are many things that are not in the book. Uh, Cases I couldn't put in, like Sergeant Lone Tree, the Marine Sergeant at the Moscow Embassy accused of espionage, because there just wasn't room. So I left out a lot of good cases, but I put in what I thought were the key cases in my own development, like Chicago Conspiracy or arguing Jack Ruby's appeal and so on. And uh, so I picked, and I chose... The various cases, leaving out some that I wish were in the book now. Well, there's always room for a volume two, then. Well, if Macaulay Culkin can do two <laughs> going, being home or whatever it's called, I can do two books. <laughs> when did you realize, when did it dawn on you that you were, as in the words of your title, a radical lawyer? Well, I think that's a little misleading. I'm not so sure, Bill, that lawyers can be radicals themselves. But I think what I did, I represent a lot of radical people. And so that makes you a a radical lawyer, I guess. But I think the only really radical aspect of my life is that I've become such an enemy of the court structure, the judicial system, the criminal code, and so on, uh, and that I do this so openly. Most lawyers will never do this, criticize judges, Supreme Court, and the rest. So I'm radical, certainly, in that sense. Are you an iconoclast? I don't think so, you know. um, Uh... What I think's happened to me is I've become sort of a folk hero to some people. I've become a terrible, hated figure to others. Uh, but I've liked being in the spotlight virtually all my life because uh, I've been doing this for a long, long time. And uh, to me, it's very exciting to have exciting cases, exciting clients. Some of them are dangerous. I understand all of that. Uh, in fact, when I came... To Washington from Los Angeles, I was attacked in the parking lot of uh, the ABC complex in Los Angeles uh, by people I thought were the Jewish Defense Organization, who leaped on the car with a crate of eggs and tried to smash them, smash the windows and so on. My poor driver became totally frightened, wanted to stop the car. I said, don't stop the car. I said, press the accelerator and get out of here. But that happens to me every once in a while. Bullets are shot through my house. 
Remember what Harry Truman said. If you can't stand the heat, get out of the kitchen. And I've always loved to be in the kitchen. I, I, I gather from the reading of this book that the more challenging the case, the hotter the kitchen, the, the better you like it. I do. I do. And uh, uh, now that I've passed the biblical three score and ten, I think five years beyond it now, I think that all of my life is sort of borrowed time anyway. So I've been lucky to get this far. So if they knock you off, you know, they, they haven't taken much away. Well, thank goodness you haven't. Uh, you're not one of those who figures that once your three score and ten has arrived, it's time to quit. No, no, I won't quit. I'm just wondering whether those outside who might have a rifle handy will quit. Mm. Well, there's always going to be those, aren't there? I mean, it, it, you you can't be yeah, I, an idealist uh, about uh, hoping to to make the world a safe and clean place for all of us. You have to be a fatalist. I mean, otherwise, uh, psychologically, you'll destroy yourself. Is it cynical for you to say that that you came to realize that the justice system often uh, I, and I'm paraphrasing you very poorly. The justice system it, it, will will crush those it hates. No, I think there's a big difference between cynicism and realism. Uh, a cynic is one in my book who who really pokes fun at everything that and thinks everything is bad, but does absolutely nothing about it. Uh, I think a realist understands that everything may be bad, but that you've always got to fight it. So I think mine is is more hopeful. I believe. In human struggle, you know, Frederick Dulles, uh, Douglas said, agitate, agitate, agitate. And I think that should be the lesson for any democracy, any country, really. Without it, uh, you grow on the vine, you wither on the vine, and you run into totalitarianism. But you must come into cases with the deck stacked so heavily against you sometimes, it, it, it must look hopeless at times. Well, I'll tell you, when the deck is so stacked, it's better for me, because the, the biggest thing that lawyers like me have going for us is that we can exploit the contradictions. You say, when the system says we do A, B, and C, we enforce this amendment and that amendment, and the public sees they don't enforce it, I think we teach a very valuable lesson, as we did in the Chicago conspiracy trial. You've, you've never gone by what the public says about you or thinks about you, have you? No, but my heart is with the public. I'm trying to say to them, for God's sake, they're destroying your Bill of Rights, we got a few people here fighting uh, on one level or another. Wake up before it's too late. And don't believe everything the government tells you or politicians tell you. Uh, they'll pander to you right and left. But uh, wake up to the reality of life and then play a role. Democracy is playing more of a role than quadrennially running to a voting booth and pulling down a couple of levers. Does the guilt or innocence of the person you're about to represent matter? It really does, depending on the crime. And many of my clients were guilty. For example, Martin Luther King broke segregation laws all over the place. Clearly guilty. And uh, the Berrigan brothers, Dan and Phil, two priests, burnt draft records right near here in Cadenceville, mm -hmm. Maryland. Uh, all the 1A files in the draft board. So they're clearly guilty, but they were trying to do like Henry David Thoreau. They were being guilty of something to teach what would maybe a bigger lesson uh, about the war in Vietnam or what was segregation or what have you. On the heavier crimes, uh, if a client is guilty, I don't think I want to know it because uh, I don't want to get up there and say this man is innocent when in my heart I know he or is not innocent. Uh, it would sap my vigor. So I don't think that if the defense were innocent and I knew the truth from the mouth of the defendant, I think I would get out of that case. Even the guilty, though, re deserve their fair representation right. in court. Right, there's no question about that. Uh, but uh, 
if I'm representing someone who says, Bill, I did it, I murdered that person, etc., etc., and I'm not prepared to admit it and say it was for a political purpose, for example, uh, but I want you to get up there and convince that jury I didn't do it, I think the psychological jump is too much for me. If he says I did it because uh, this man was bad for my people, and he's willing to admit that, of course I'll stay with that case. After this short break, William Kunstler explains why one of his most famous clients couldn't possibly be guilty of what some people say he was. Now back to my 1994 conversation with attorney William Kunstler. You had represented Jack Ruby, you said, on his appeal. And over the years, there have been any number of books trying to explain how he was part of the conspiracy to assassinate the president. And it was, was he part of a conspiracy? I think not. I, you know... Uh... Strange that I represent him in the first place because I was on my way to represent Lee Harvey Oswald, his victim, when Oswald was shot. And then Martin Luther King got me into the uh, Ruby case. He'd been sentenced to death, if you remember. I didn't try the case. Uh, It was done by Melvin Belli on the West Coast. And uh, his brother, Earl, wanted me to join the appellate team. And Dr. King said, sure, do it. It's a death penalty case. So I went out there. But I have traced every step of the way he took on that fatal Sunday when he shot Oswald. And it was so split-second timing that any delay along the way, any stoplight, uh, would have he never would have met Oswald, who was supposed to be transported an hour before anyway. He was going to the only Western Union open in Dallas to send a money order to a dancer at the Carousel Club, whom he hadn't paid because of Kennedy's assassination who was being evicted from her her room. And he got to the uh, Western Union office, which is a block down away from City Hall. And I think he sent the money, I think, at 11.18. And uh, his meeting with Oswald was 11.19. Just took a minute to walk down that block. There'd been one customer there. He never would have met Oswald. So I was convinced he was not, that he was too unstable to be in a conspiracy. And if he was... He would have been the first when Chief Justice Warren visited him in jail and he was on death row to say, I have news about a conspiracy if you get me off death row, which would have gotten him off death row, no question about it. But he never did that. So I was convinced that he was just a a sort of a toady, police toady in Dallas running these two strip joints and toadying to the Dallas Police Department, brought sandwiches to him on the night of Kennedy's assassination and so on that uh, he is not the one that any sane conspirator would have employed. Also, the, the, the case that, uh, that really made your reputation, the Chicago conspiracy case, when you said in the book that it took just a few hours to choose that jury, now we're in the middle of, of a trial on the West Coast where they're talking about several weeks to choose a jury. Or months. Or months, yeah. Just, but then again, I take it you weren't very happy with the jury that was chosen in just a few Except hours' time. Except we did have one very good juror on it, Christy King, mm-hmm. young Vista volunteer. And then the government sent her letters, which she never saw. She was sequestered, but the judge showed them to her, saying, we are watching you, the Black Panthers. And she got scared and got off. And in her place came Kay Richards, who was engaged to Mayor Daly's patronage dispenser in Cook County, and who brokered whatever convictions they eventually got. So that was a very heavy little move on the part of the government to get rid of her and put Kay Richards in her place. Wow. That, that case really did, really did make your reputation for you, didn't it? Oh, it did. I was, you know, I had been Dr. King's special trial counsel for 
eight years before it. And as you know, he was assassinated just a few months before the Chicago Convention in 1968. And uh, I was well known, you know, but not the way I was after Chicago. Imagine, I, lawyer got the heaviest contempt sentence ever ministered in the United States, four years and 13 days. And uh, that made me a household word. I, I, you were certainly a word in our household, and I'm, I'm not sure I could repeat on the radio the word that my father had for you at that point. Well, he's not the only one, <laughs> believe me. You, you have to strap on some pretty thick armor when you're going to take on a cause like that, don't you? Yeah, well, I, you know, I know that some of these cases, like the murder of Rabbi Kahani in New mm -hmm. York, I knew there was going to be trouble, and, and it came. Pickets around my house, bullets flying through the downstairs window, bullets in the mail, hate messages on my answering machine, vitriolic letters that came, roughed up on the street near the courthouse, and so on. I knew all these things would happen, but that's, if you're going to do these kind of cases, you've got to anticipate and expect that and hope to live through it. When you, when you take on a case and you begin to gather the facts and you begin to organize your strategy and how you're going to argue, how do you know you're right? How do, is there a voice inside you that, that guides you and, and, and that tells you this is, this is right, this is what you should be doing? Yeah, Bill, no one knows that he or she is always right. There's no question about that. I have an instinctual feel about some of these cases that's good for me to be in them. That's uh, not totally shared by my family, for example. My wife did not want me in the World Trade Center cases because she felt that there'd be a lot of re retaliation for it, uh, but I felt it was important to be, so I overruled her, even though in most instances I take her advice. Uh, but uh, it's a sort of an instinct that this is the right case to be in, and uh, if I'm wrong, I made a horrible choice. But I have not been wrong so far. I don't know of any of the cases I took that I would not take again. I, I did find there's something... something uh, ironic and something pleasing. I, I'm sure you find it pleasing that you live in a house that Harriet Tubman once lived in. In 1857, Miss Tubman rented this house, and it was a stop on the Underground Railroad. Someone showed me a clipping when I first moved in. Someone writing a book about Greenwich Village, showing that two slaves died in the place I now have my office in the basement when a, apparently a kerosene lamp went over, and they were asphyxiated. Until then, I never knew she had a connection with that particular house, but it's in what used to be a black enclave in Greenwich Village. Uh, there was a stable at the end of the, now a garage, at the end of the block which uh, where blacks worked, and if you remember the draft riots of 1863, they were hanging blacks uh, on Gay Street, Carmine Street, all around me when the uh, Irish and German mobs, when Lincoln asked for more troops, uh, revolted and went on a rampage. And they killed a lot of the blacks in the area. At least 11 were hanged. Is there anything else that you wanted to add? Or? The book is sort of like an epitaph, you know, a eulogy. Uh, that's one reason I'm glad I put it together, because it sort of personalizes for me and memorializes in a concrete fashion what my life has been. Up to this time, it's been all memory. And as you know, we make all sorts of apology in here for misstatements, etc., because I have to dredge up this computer in my head and try to remember, and there's a very frank admission by my uh, collaborator here that some of the things I told her turned out not to be true. Now, I may have thought they were true. She checked, did a fact check, 
found they weren't true. Uh, but they were relatively minor. For example, I put Justice Scalia in Princeton, because I thought that's what he said at the argument. And then the New York Times book reviewer says to me, he doesn't, didn't go to Princeton. <laughs> but I didn't think that was particularly crucial to the book. William Kunstler died just a year after our interview in 1995. He was 76 years old. Now, you can find all of our past episodes of Now I've Heard Everything at our website, heardeverything.com. And you'll find episodes from Season 1, Season 2, and now Season 3. We're about to enter Season 4 soon. And you can find all of those episodes at heardeverything.com. While you're there, be sure and listen to my interview with another well-known defense attorney who's had his share of controversial cases, Johnny Cochran. When I was 11 years old, I wanted to be a lawyer. And as I think back, I can only tell you that I love to convince, to persuade, to argue. Because I didn't really know much about any lawyers until high school. And hear my interview with one of the Chicago Seven, those who William Kunstler defended, Bobby Seale. My philosophy was not just black power. There was a all power to all the people uh, philosophy. And I still exist and stand on the principles of being what I call a revolutionary humanist. And, of course, we post new episodes here every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And you can find us on all major podcast platforms. And thanks for listening. Next time on Now I've Heard Everything, we're all in the Christmas spirit right now. So we'll have my 1988 conversation with the composer of one of the most famous Christmas songs of all time. Chestnuts roasting on an open fire. The great Mel Torme. When they found out that I wasn't an ex-junkie or a current junkie or a future junkie or that I was a hard-drinking, two-fisted, you know, they decided not to do a piece on me. That's next time on Now I've Heard Everything. I'm Bill Thompson. Bill Thompson.